Looking at Ephesians chapter 2 in this middle section of another one of Paul's very long sentences, where Paul, thus far in Ephesians, has been establishing the wonder of the grace of God and how God works in our life and how God sovereignly works. In particular, he had been emphasizing in the couple of preceding verses how before God's working of grace, we were hopeless, we were godless, we were friendless, we were Christless, and we were foreigners and strangers to the promises of God. But here in this passage, Paul is describing not simply the grace of God, but he is describing what the experience is like for those who are not of Jewish lineage. And what, is, what happens, what does God do in the lives of Gentiles, and what is the experience of Gentiles as Gentiles turn and put their faith in Jesus Christ? So follow along with me as I read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who, were one, who, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and preached peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, Send your spirit. We are blind to your word apart from the illumination of your spirit to open our hearts to understand it. Lord, today we are discussing things some people have heard many times, but the reality of which has never been experienced or expressed in their lives. Would today be different? Would your spirit work and superintend the preach word to change lives, to unite us to one another, and through Christ to unite us to yourself? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We live in a world of rivalries. Some of those are great, some of those are small. I mean, after all, are you a Pepsi person or a Coke person, right? Are you a Mac or a PC user? Are you a Cowboys or a Redskins fan? Other great rivalries such as the New York Yankees versus pretty much everybody else. I mean, who likes the Yankees after all, right? Democrats and Republicans, or democracies versus communism and dictatorships. And of course, rivalries that have been far more violent around the course of our world, such as the Berlin Wall and the division and rivalry between East and West Germany as it was turned down, torn down years ago. Or the Iron Curtain and its efforts to be resurrected. Or the divisions and rivalries and hostilities between the races here in America. We turn to this passage of Scripture where there is a historic rivalry in which there has been much blood shed. A rivalry that is racial, it is religious, it is cultural, and it is political. And it is a rivalry 
that has been reconciled in Jesus Christ. And this morning, we are going to examine the progression of how Jesus brings about this reconciliation in this great rivalry and thereby in the own, our own divisions in our own life at every level in between. And my goal in going through this this morning is so that you would, have, that you would gain a deeper understanding and a deeper realization of the interconnection of biblical truths that if you've been to church for any number of weeks, you have probably heard many times. And if you have heard them, if you've been to church for many years of your life, they're truths that you have probably heard repeatedly, and sometimes that you're saying, yeah, okay, yeah, I got it, yeah, I got it. My goal this morning is that you would gain a deeper understanding of the interconnection and the progression of these truths one upon another. Also, that you would gain an appreciation for the way that Jesus Christ is the one through whom divisions in this world and in our own lives can be reconciled. We're going to work through this passage examining the progression of the work of Christ and the experience of Gentiles. And then at the end, I'm going to focus on some particular applications, so I'm going to save most of my applications towards the end, so stay with me is what that means. All right? So this is what Paul tells us here as we enter into the middle of this passage is that in the midst of this great rivalry, Jesus Christ has brought us peace. It says in verse 13, For he, Jesus Christ, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. It's a phrase that Paul has used throughout Ephesians, something that I haven't focused on yet, but I'm doing so today. Paul says, Christ is our peace, who has made us both one. Who is the us? Who is the us that Paul is talking about here? He is talking about Jews and Gentiles, that there are two people groups in this world. There are the Jews and everybody else. The Jews and the Gentiles, the Greek word there is ethne, which is where we get the word ethnicities. Now, you may be very keenly aware of hostility and division between other races besides conflict between Jews and everybody else. You may be aware of tensions and painfully aware of tensions and hostilities between in America, between black people and white people, or between Hispanics and Koreans, particularly as new immigrants. More globally, we can back out and look at the genocide that's going on around our globe, ethnic cleansing, rivalries and wars between, you know, in history between the Hutus and the Tutsis, between the Serbs and the Croatians, between various Asian groups and Asian people groups as they seek to eradicate each other. And we can be very keenly aware of these other major divisions that are going on around the globe and look at a passage that groups people into two people groups, Jews and Gentiles, Jews and everybody else. And we may look at this passage and come in to say, okay, we may feel that this doesn't actually address the deep divisions that are present in this world, and you would be wrong if that is your feeling. In part... Because the greatest racial division in the history of the world has between the, been between the Jews and every other people group. Currently in the world, it probably still is the greatest racial tension and racial division. Certainly, is there, or rather, is there any people group in the globe, in the history of the world, that has been known by the peoples of the earth to the degree that the Jews have been known? I mean, there are people... In every country of this globe, 
And most of the people groups in most every country of this globe not only know the Jews, but they also have an opinion of the Jews, and most likely that is a hostility that exists between them. And in ancient times, as Paul is writing this, the hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles was indeed great. So Paul, writing to a Gentile church, encourages them with these words. He says to them, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by the hands. The text is delineated that way is because the two groups hated each other. And because they hated each other, they used the term the uncircumcised or the circumcised as a term of derision depending upon what side you were on. It's kind of the way that Democrats scoff at Republicans and Republicans scoff at Democrats. No matter which side you're on, you scoff and deride the other side. However, for Jews and Gentiles, the uncircumcised versus the circumcised, take your pick of which side you want to deride, the hostility between them was immense. Those who were regarded as the uncircumcised were viewed as being outside of the covenant people of God, outside the promises of God. And in fact, ancient Jewish rabbis actually taught, the writing still exists, that the reason why God created the Gentiles was because they needed fuel for the fires of hell. And that's why they exist. And in fact, in a Gentile village, I'm sorry, in a Jewish village, if a Jewish child married a Gentile, the village would gather together and have a ceremony. But it was not a wedding ceremony, rather it was a funeral ceremony for the loss and for the death of a Jewish child by marrying a Gentile. So when we come to this passage and look at Jews and Gentiles as it's referred in Scripture, the hostility has been generational, cultural, religious, historical, racial, political, and almost in every degree therein. So how does peace come to this hostility. Paul says this, specifically that Christ is our peace, who has made us, Jew and Gentile, both one, and he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How, does, how is there peace? Because Christ has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. Most likely, Paul is using a metaphor here from the temple complex. Now, within the temple complex, this is Herod's temple. This was present at the time that Paul was writing this in Israel. It hadn't been destroyed yet. And in terms of access to God, the way that it worked was like this. Inside the temple, there was a place called the Holy of Holies. The temple itself inside of it was only allowed, only the priests were allowed to go in there. And the Holy of Holies, only the high priest was allowed to go in, and he was only allowed to enter once per year. Outside of the temple itself, there was the courtyard, you'd come down 14 or so steps, and there was a great altar where the sacrifices would be performed. You would come down another dozen or so steps into the general courtyard where males, heads of households, would come in to offer their sacrifices at the temple altar. Outside of that, they would progress down another seven or so steps and come to know what was known as the court of the women. Women were not allowed to progress into the court of men, Jewish men were not allowed to progress into the area of the priest. The priests were not allowed to progress into the area where the high priest went. Outside of the court of women was this, it was this structure that held the various temple trappings. There was a broader plaza, and then there was this wall that surrounded, this barricade that surrounded the temple complex. That temple complex divided 
the area of the Jews from what was known as the court of the Gentiles around here, a physical dividing wall that existed. And on that dividing wall was included an inscription, which they have um, in a museum, that says this. Actually, what that means for us is this. It says, no foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade in the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, death which will follow. And so that zone surrounded the entire realm. So if a Gentile wanted to worship God, they could come into this area, be instructed by the priests, and that was where their access to God was restricted and limited. And any view of anything that was happening was going on levels and levels above them, up flights of stairs, up flights of stairs, up flights of stairs, up flights of stairs, until the presence of God being represented in the Holy of Holies and in that place. And so Paul declares that Jesus Christ has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. Dividing wall being that using that as a metaphor for specifically what Christ has done. And specifically what he did was he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now let's understand what Paul is saying here. He is saying that Jesus Christ tore down the division between Jews and Gentiles by abolishing the law of God. Now, students of the Bible, if they think about this, will have a question that comes to their mind. And the question they'll ask is this, how can the Apostle Paul say that Jesus Christ abolished the law when Jesus himself said that he did not come to abolish the law, but rather that he came to fulfill it? In examining these two texts and the flow of their passages, you can see that what each of them is teaching it complements one another rather than contradicts one another. For Jesus did not abolish God's law as a moral standard. If you want to know how to live for God, if you want to know if you've been saved by God's grace and you want to live a life that is honoring to God, how do you know what, how to do that? God has given us his law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Honor your father and mother. Don't kill. Promote life. Don't steal. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't covet. But rather be content in what the Lord has provided to you. If you want to know a life, how to live a life that is honoring to the Lord, here is God's moral standard contained in his law. But... While Christ has not abolished the moral standard that God has provided, what he has done is he has both fulfilled the law and in a different sense, he has abolished it. In regards to our salvation, Jesus Christ has fulfilled the requirements of the law and he has abolished the condemnation of the law and that being the basis on which we come before God. Is that Jesus in his perfect life that he lived, never sinning, he perfectly fulfilled the moral law that he always did what he should have done. He never said, oh, shoot, I shouldn't have done that. He never had any regrets. He was always loving, always gracious, always kind, and he never did the things that the Word of God prohibited. Similarly, Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law, the law in the Old Testament that described the, the feasts and the practices and the various ceremonial ritual washings. Jesus Christ fulfilled all of those things as they pointed forward to him. He also fulfilled the sacrificial law, the law that there would be animals sacrificed as substitutes for people's sin. Jesus Christ fulfilled that as he himself became the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, ultimate sacrifice that we could be made right with the law and made right with God. Perfectly fulfilling every aspect of it. And because he perfectly fulfilled it, he alone could be the one that abolished it. 
And the way that Jesus abolished the law is he took the condemnation of the law upon himself. He took the punishment of the law. The law demanded punishment and death for anyone who breaks it. And Jesus Christ on the cross, though he himself did not deserve that punishment, he himself on the cross took the punishment, took the condemnation for those who did. So, through the cross of Christ, we who trust in him have both the law of God fulfilled by Jesus Christ and the condemnation of the law abolished because it was, it was abolished in Jesus Christ. But it was the law of God, the regulations and the condemnation that brought, brought alienation. Alienation from, between people and God and alienation between people to one another. And both of them were abolished by the cross of Jesus Christ and have brought us peace. You see, there's this wrong view of Christianity that is very prevalent, even prevalent among people in the church, particularly when they sin and mess up big. And the view is this, and the view of God goes, well, I need to get myself right with God before I can come back to church. I need to get my life together before I'm ready to engage with God or consider the things of God. I need to get my act together before doing that. And there are two options for the way that we relate to the Lord, to God himself. We can try to get our act together and do what Jesus Christ did and fulfill the law that Jesus Christ fulfilled on our own, which you will fail miserably at and have already done so. Or you can accept what Christ did in your place and accept it on your behalf and receive the grace that God has given to you and the peace that he has purchased for you. But specifically what Christ has done is that Christ is our peace, and he did so by abolishing the law. Notice the progression of what happens next. He abolishes the law, he is our peace, and because he abolishes the law, abolishes the dividing wall, these two separate groups join together, and Christ has made us one. Stay with me as we work through this progression. It says this, Christ tore down the, div the dividing wall by abolishing the law of commandments, expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. But it says that he's making one new man in place of the two. Who are the two men that he is replacing? Jews and Gentiles. So when he takes the race of the Jews and the race of the Gentiles and he combines them into one new man, what is Paul declaring that Jesus Christ has done? He has created a new humanity, a new race, where the other races and divisions of this world are joined together and united in Christ as one in Christ, one man in Christ, one people in Christ, one race in Jesus Christ. And indeed, the divisions that Christ overcome are not less than racial, but they are more than that. For in Colossians, Paul declares that there is neither Jew nor Greek, Circumcised nor uncircumcised, that means religious or unreligious. Barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, referring to social status. But Christ is all and in all. All of these divisions are united together into one new man, Jesus Christ. States it again in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He has made us one. Now, in making us one, human differentiation has not been removed. It is not homogenization. 
men are still men, women are still women, Jews are still of Jewish lineage, white people are still white, and black people are still black. But what's identifying here is that the inequality before God has been utterly abolished. That there is no basis for any person to presume themselves to be above another person. And that the dividing wall between us and any sort of division and inequality before one another or before God has been abolished. And now there is a new unity in diversity through Jesus Christ. The old divisions of people have been superseded by a new entity, which is the body of Christ, which is his church, united as one. So, Paul says there is peace. He's abolished the law and commandments. He takes the two different races, joins them together as one. Here is the next step. He does so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. Christ bore the hostility that existed between God and man. He killed the hostility that existed between peoples. And by killing the hostility between God and man, he thereby killed the hostility between Jews and Gentiles and has joined them together into one reconciled body. Let me give you one implication of this. Every individual person, if they want to have a relationship with God, needs to admit their own failure to follow God's law and individually trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, as the one who has taken the punishment of God's law for them. However, or rather, not however, but along with that, though I individually need to put my faith in Christ, I am not independently reconciled to God. I am not independently reconciled to God. Rather, what happens is that Jesus Christ joined, in, joined me into a new humanity. He joined me into the body of Christ. And by being joined into the body of Christ, it is this one body that has been reconciled to God through the cross. That's what he says in verse 16. That God, in the place that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God. How? In one body. We're reconciled together in one body. And it is that one body that is reconciled to God through the cross of Jesus Christ. This has huge and profound implications. But to summarize what Paul has been stating here, it is this. That the work of Jesus Christ is nothing less than a new, united human race united to one another, united to God the Father, united in the church of Jesus Christ, for Christ has made us one. There's one final step in this progression that we need to address before focusing on some specific applications, is that we have seen the sequence of Christ's work. He has fulfilled and abolished the law. He has created a new humanity out of two, making peace between Jews and Gentiles. He has joined them together into one body. He has reconciled this new humanity to God through the cross, killing hostility between us. He has worked this sequence in progression. He has united us to Jesus Christ, but all of that stuff happens for a climactic event. 
all of those individual works of God, all of those individual events that are parts of our salvation are working to something greater and more significant. And what they are working towards is this final thing, is that through Jesus Christ, He has given us peace. He has made us one. All of these things for the express purpose of giving us access to God the Father. He begins the passage by describing it this way. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Reconciliation being described as being brought near. The Bible uses reconciling terms in a variety of different ways. It's used in terms of our accounts. That before God, Jesus Christ has reconciled us. We have no debt before God because of what Christ has done. We've been reconciled to the law. That through Jesus Christ, we are declared not only innocent, but righteous. That the, that the fulfillment of the law, which Christ accomplished, has been credited to us. So we are now reconciled to the law and reconciled to the lawgiver. We have a legal standing as being righteous before God. We are reconciled in our ceremonial purity because through Jesus Christ, we have been cleansed and our impurities have been removed and we are ceremonially reconciled. Here is a fifth description of what the reconciliation of Christ is. And it is a relational term that you who are far off have been brought near. The greatest curse in the Bible in humankind is to be alienated, estranged, or banished from God's presence. When God created Adam and Eve after they sinned, the curse of their sin was that they were banished from the presence of God. And God has made a way through Jesus Christ that those who are far off would be brought near so that people would not be banished from God's presence for all eternity. And the greatest privilege that that people can have is to be near to God. And so by the blood of Christ, the law was abolished. Hostility was killed. We've been joined together in one new man and brought near to God. Verse 18 says that the... Says, expresses this as well. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Let's connect these different truths together. Being forgiven for our sins is really good news. It should affect us every day. But having the righteousness of Christ bestowed upon us is better than forgiveness. Because you're not only, not, not only are you said, is it said that your wrongs are covered, but everything that was good and beautiful has been credited to your account. So you stand before God as one who is righteous. But there's something even better than that. Is that not just being righteous, but being an adopted child of God. That you are not just in a legal right standing, but you've been made part of the household of God. Your debts have been paid for. You have good standing with the law. You've been brought into the household of God as an heir. And there is something even better than that. And being better than that, what is better than that is being united to Jesus Christ. And all these other truths are subsumed in this idea that you are united to Christ. And because you're united to Christ, all the benefits that are bestowed upon Christ also become bestowed upon you. 
But the purpose of you being united to Christ is something even bigger. Something that we take for granted. Is that the significance of being united to Christ is that you, who were far off, now have access to the God of heaven and earth. You have been brought into the presence of God. You have access to the presence of God so that you would be brought near to him. And all of those other descriptions are profound, life-changing truths, and they should be. But they're one-time events substantially. But rather, access denotes the continuing relationship that we have with God. What this means is that our relationship with God, there is a way for a direct relationship to the Heavenly Father. That your relationship with God isn't mediated by courts and barriers and gender and the sacrifices that you bring and a priest and a curtain and a dividing wall. Your relationship with God isn't mediated by how good you are. Or by whether or not you've accomplished enough. All of those things have been torn down so that you would have direct access to the King of Kings, to God Almighty. We have been brought near. John Stott, the great biblical scholar, theologian, picking up on the significance of the access that we have to God states this, the highest and fullest achievement of the peacemaking Christ. It is the highest thing that Christ did. The fullest achievement that Jesus Christ accomplished for us is the Trinitarian access of the people of God, as through him by one spirit we come boldly to our Father. What he is stating this, the highest and fullest achievement that we have is that you individually, through Jesus Christ, that you have direct access to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. And that is the highest and fullest thing, as thought says, that Jesus Christ has done. And it is not you individually. It is the body of Christ, his church, his people, joined and given access to the Father, of which you are individually a part. Each aspect of the work of Christ should grow us in love for God and love for one another. You take these things together, what does it mean? It means that through Christ Jesus, there is no longer alienation, but reconciliation. No longer hostility, but peace. No longer division, but unity. No longer estrangement, but access to God Almighty. United together as one body, the church, which is God's new society. God's new society where God rules. The church, the bride of Christ that God loves, in which he lives in, and in whom knowledge of God is found. One in the body of Christ, one in the church of Jesus Christ, but... The reality of our experiences in the church is often very different, is it not? It's often very tragic. Oftentimes, churches, the church, church, churches, take your form of the word, are often filled with discord, hostility, disunity, and divisiveness. Christians erect barriers of class, denominations, race, political affiliations, various sects that are often driven by pride and prejudice and jealousy, all of which contradict the unity of the church, the universality of the church that Jesus Christ purchased. 
and bled and died for. You know, I have spoken many times on the issue of how the gospel how the gospel brings reconciliation and how the gospel needs to bring reconciliation in our church, in our community, reconciliation between races. I've spoken on that many times. And so today, lest anyone be confused or concerned that the issue of gospel reconciliation, whether that's racial or socioeconomic or some other form, lest anyone be concerned that this issue and topic is a recent invention, that it is driven by current, the current social or political climate, or that the reason why you're hearing it here is because it is the syncretism of various social movements with biblical teaching, I'll quote somebody writing 40 years ago who was British and completely outside of the American context. We return to our scholar John Stott. Speaking of racial divisions and the church's involvement in racial divisions and divisions of any other kind, he says this, these things are doubly offensive. First, they are an offense to Jesus Christ. How dare we build walls of partition in the one and only human community in which he has destroyed them? Of course, there are barriers of language and culture in the world outside, and of course, new converts feel more comfortable among their own kind who speak and dress and eat and drink and behave in the same way that they do and have always done. But deliberately to perpetuate these barriers in the church and even to tolerate them without taking any active steps to overcome them in order to demonstrate the transcultural unity of God's new society is to set ourselves against the reconciling work of Jesus Christ, and even to try to undo it. He continues, What is offensive to Christ is offensive also, though in a different way, to the world. It hinders the world from believing in Jesus. God intends His people to be a visual model of the gospel, to demonstrate before God, before peoples of to demonstrate before people's eyes the good news of reconciliation. But what is the good of gospel campaigns if they do not produce gospel churches? It is simply impossible with any shred of Christian integrity to go on proclaiming that Jesus, by his cross, has abolished the old divisions and created a single new humanity of love, while at the same time, we are contradicting our message by tolerating racial or social or other barriers within our church fellowship. I'm not saying that a church must be perfect before it can preach the gospel. But I am saying that it cannot preach the gospel while acquiescing in its imperfections. I think we really need to grasp our failures to practice what Jesus Christ has accomplished. We need to repent over our eagerness and our flippantness, flippantliness, however that goes. Our flippant attitude to excuse and overlook such failures. For those of you that would lament and criticize the church for being divided, why is it that the church is so often divided? It is, it is because people in churches are divisive. That's why the church divides, because divisive people divide churches. Let me state the obvious. And we fail to 
demonstrate the unity that Christ bled and died for, when we refuse to reconcile, when we refuse even to care about these things, when we refuse to think the best, when we refuse to even be a little bit uncomfortable, that must not be God's will for me because I'm uncomfortable, when we refuse to be stressed by, someone, by a relationship with somebody else, you know, for some reason, Christians have so embodied this idea that if there's any stress in my life, if there's any difficult relationship, it must, be God, it must not be God's will. I'm just going to quit and tag out. And so there's this irony that goes on is that people say things like, you know what, I don't want to be divisive. I don't want to be divisive. So I'm just going to go somewhere else. Do you get the irony of that? I, I don't want to be divisive, so I, I'm just not going to engage. I'm just not, I'm, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to connect. In fact, you have, you have it at a broader scale within our whole country where people say, I don't want to be divisive, denominations are divisive, so I'm just going to be completely by myself or find a group of people that doesn't affiliate with anybody. We're not, gonna, we're not even going to pretend to pursue unity. We're just going to be our own little entity. But we also fail to live the unity that Christ bled and died for. When we have thoughts along these lines, when it comes to our comfort zone, and you see someone you don't know, and the thought goes through your mind, and you say, wow, I, I don't know them. I'm not going to talk to them. Or, I, I, I don't want to hang out with people who are in a different stage of life from me. I, I don't want to hang out with them. You know, one of the privileges that I have as a pastor of the church is I get to interact with all the different demographics in our church at every different level. I hear that one a lot. I, I don't want to hang out with people who are in a different phase of life. I mean, I'm just, and just as a challenge to the older generations, I hear that from the older generation projected on the younger generation quite frequently. They, they don't want to hang out with people like us. They're not interested in us. And actually, it's quite the opposite. Is that most younger people really, really want older godly role models in their lives. They want older people who have who have gone down the path and have made some, stepped in some potholes and pitfalls before, they really want to hear from that. But all of a sudden, when we take an attitude of saying, well, I don't want to hang out with people who are in a different stage of life from me, you are failing to pursue the unity that Jesus Christ bled and died for. Or similar thoughts of like, I don't want to, I don't want to be in a community group if I don't know people. Or how about just more, a much more base thought? I just do not like that person. It's fine, we can go to the same church, they can sit on that side, we can sit on this side. I just don't like that person. I don't want to be around that person. I don't want to go on the women's retreat. I may be the only one like me. Praise the Lord that the unity that you have is not found in your individual demographic. But there is a unity that comes through Jesus Christ that transcends all those things. Or when it comes to conflict within a church. Why should I go to them? They can come to me. Or, you know what, I'm offended by what that person said or did. I'm just going to avoid them and not talk to them. Or I don't like what that church did. I don't like what that church leader did. I'm just going to go somewhere else. And all of those things, all of those attitudes of when you choose the path of division instead of the path of unity, all of those things trample on what Christ did on the cross. Where he died to create one person, joined together, 
that supersedes the individual human divisions that we so quickly erect and develop. And on these different thoughts that I'm talking about here, I'm not even getting into the issues of the, of the things that we intentionally do or d- unintentionally do that exclude other races or other classes than those by ourselves. These are just our individual thoughts with the relationships. I don't want to be near that person. I don't want to have to engage with that. I don't want to have to deal with what's going on there. And so, because of the blood of Christ... Because I know of you, so many of you delight and celebrate in what Christ has did on the cross. I would ask you to seriously take some time this week and consider and ask God to show you, where have I failed to live in the unity for which Jesus Christ bled and died? Where have I failed to pursue the unity for which the blood of Christ was shed? And as we seek God to pursue one another, pursue messy people who are probably just a little bit less messy than you are and probably have just a few less issues than you do, may the Spirit of God work mightily in our midst. May the Spirit of God work so that we would reflect the biblical reality and actually be, as a church, that we would be a single new humanity, a model human community that we would be a loving, gracious, truth-filled community, that we would be who Christ made us to be, the body of Christ, which is united brothers and sisters who have been reconciled to one another and reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, who love their Heavenly Father and each other, and who evidence the work of the indwelling Spirit because of the way that the love of Christ moves them to overcome barriers and boundaries. May we be one so that the world may believe that Jesus Christ actually is the one who killed hostility and brings us to God. So that the world may believe that Jesus Christ is the one who is the answer to the rivalries and divisions in this world. And ultimately, so that God himself will receive the glory that he is due for making us one in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you and just confess our own divisive hearts. Father, it is so easy to look at divisions and to point the finger. Yeah, they're so divisive. Yeah, I can't believe they did that. Yeah, look at them. Look how bad they are. Wow, look how, bad, look how divided the church is. And realize that it's divisive because of people like us. Because the spirit of divisiveness pursues within each one of us. Because we're so addicted to our own comfort and pleasure that we would, we would rather divide than deal with the stress of reconciliation. But you, Lord, have given us a righteousness in Christ. You have torn down the dividing wall of hostility. May we not rebuild it. Lord, may you use us as instruments of reconciliation. to reconcile the differences that are present in this world through Jesus Christ. Lord, we all stand before you with, 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 with bringing nothing. And yet, Lord, you have made us one. And Father, we do pray that you would save us from being like ourselves. And Lord, that you would enrich us with the body of Christ by bringing the diversity of Christ into this place, that you would be honored and glorified that your church would be a picture of a model humanity 
Not that we can attain it in this life, but because Jesus Christ is supernatural and the Spirit works in supernatural ways to do supernatural things. And so, Lord, because you have promised this and you are working this, we ask for it. In the name of Jesus Christ, who bled and died and rose again, amen.